0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm Dan Levesey. Today I'm speaking with Carla Pistana, Professor and Joyce Appleby Endowed Chair Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm Dan Levesey. Today I'm speaking with Carla Pistana, Professor and Joyce Appleby Endowed Chair at UCLA, and we'll be discussing her new book, The English Conquest of Jamaica Oliver Cromwell's Bid for Empire. Carla, thanks for joining me.
1: Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for asking me.
0: One of the things that, you know, I think a lot of us scholars of the Atlantic have noticed is that Jamaica has attracted more and more attention from scholars of the Anglophone Atlantic. Um, And your study actually looks at the moment in which Jamaica is taken over by the English in 1655. And I wonder what it was that drew you to that particular moment in that particular project.
1: Well, I had written a previous book on the period in the English Atlantic, uh, the 1640s and 1650s. And that was when I discovered that there were enormous numbers of records around this incident of the Western design and the conquest of Jamaica. And so that alerted me to the fact that even though the 17th century Atlantic world is pretty um, relatively source poor, there was a cache there that uh, was worth exploring more. I was also I'm, I'm I'm interested in the 17th century in that early period and in and mid century and the period of the English Revolution in particular. So that those things together kind of brought me to want to look more closely at this incident.
0: Yeah, and it's it's a really complex endeavor, obviously, and the way you lay it out is really fantastic. Um, there's probably a lot of context for people that don't know. Jamaica in the 17th century that, that maybe should be fleshed out a little bit. Um, so before the English conquered Jamaica, the island had been taken from the Tayano people by the Spanish, um, and then for the next century and a half was was ruled by the Spanish. Could you give a little bit of context first off about what the Spanish presence in the Caribbean was like, um, and especially in, in Jamaica prior to
1: 1655? Sure. Um, the islands were, of course, the point of, of entry for the Spanish when they first came to the Americas. And initially, there was widespread conquest of especially the larger, the three larger islands um, of Hispaniola, uh, Cuba, and Jamaica. And those were taken over, the native peoples were um, attacked, Uh, in many cases, enslaved uh, or killed. And the islands became the focal point of the first expansion of the Spanish into the Americas. They set up communities, they set up agriculture, they used native peoples initially, as well as some Africans as laborers. And then as the conquistadors turned to the mainland, the islands became less important in the larger scheme of things, so over time um Spanish population and and even island native population started to move to the mainland. uh Some people were actually taken from the islands uh where they had been born and were um, being employed as laborers on the mainland in this initial period of of Spanish colonization of that region. And so the islands in most cases became less populous, both because of the decline of the native population, but also because of the movement of people out of that region. So Cuba is important, especially around Havana, because that port matters for Spanish imperial arrangements. Uh, particularly, it becomes the site where the fleet that sails every year will will gather. And so the, the the port is fortified, uh, and the hinterland is developed to support the ships that are coming through there. But the other islands, the populations drop and drop, and the um, Spanish policy is actually to withdraw the populations toward a particular uh, geographic location. So in in the case of Hispaniola, they moved down to around Santo Domingo. In the case of Jamaica, similarly, they eventually moved down towards what today is Kingston Harbor, what at the time was Santiago de la Vega, the main town of the Spanish in Jamaica in the 17th century. Um, Although it's it's somewhat significant for, this, for the development of Jamaica in particular that it is not actually directly a Spanish crown holding, but it is the last thing owned by the Columbus family. The Columbuses initially had vast holdings, and these were reduced and reduced until the family, the descendants, have only Jamaica. So it's not actually directly under the Spanish imperial administration. It's um, controlled fairly lightly and developed almost not at all, by the descendants of Christopher Columbus. So Jamaica is even more so a backwater. It was known at the time as a very healthy island, which is interesting given its later history, partly because it was, it was really lightly populated. Um, and it was a place, it was kind of a garden site. I mean, the way people write about it, it sort of, you know, it grows a lot of food products. It's a place that, you know, a a variety of things for people to eat. It's a place that slaving ships would sometimes stop on their way to the major ports in order to uh, improve the health of the slaves, um, possibly, you know, add food and water to their uh, ships uh, on their way to other locations. So it was, it only had a population of a couple thousand people they mostly lived around the main town, but then they also had both ranches in the countryside and also there was a there was a considerable population of free and enslaved individuals who worked as basically vaqueros you know who were um, lancers who knew how to hunt and uh, slaughter the livestock that roamed the island because the trade in hides was really big in the um, economy of jamaica so it's not a very important place in the larger spanish scheme of things by the middle of the 17th century Uh, not very well developed uh, in terms of a lot of you know in-depth agriculture or industry it's kind of uh lightly populated and, and economically fairly diverse.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, for those people that know about the Western design, it wasn't the initial target of the Western design. Um, so maybe we can shift over to the English side of of um, the, the, the thought around going into the Caribbean. Um, so can you explain what this Western design was? Because it really is uh, important, as you were mentioning, in terms of what was happening with the English Civil Wars and, late the restoration. So what, what was this actual Western design that was being planned in England?
1: Well, it's it's interesting that this is the name we know it by, because this was a name that arose as a result of its secrecy. Initially, uh, Oliver Cromwell had just become Lord Protector over England, Ireland, and Scotland, as well as uh, the dominions thereunto belonging, including the colonies uh, in the Americas. And... He decided to launch a massive fleet to attack the Spanish in America, but he didn't announce that that's what he was going to do. It was it was apparent to people that something was afoot. There was a lot of preparation going on, uh, ships being ready, cargo's being readied, uh, men being mustered. And people could see that there was no way to hide that, those facts. But the destination was a closely guarded secret including lots of the people who go don't know where they're going, which is kind of hard to fathom given what what happens to them. I mean, most of them never actually get home again, or at least those who go as soldiers never get home again. And so the people who were involved in the preparation just refer to it as the present design or the present expedition. And then once it finally sails and it's clear it's going to the West, uh, it's going to the Americas. It be, it begins to be called the Western design as a way to be vague and non specific about its target. And even at the time that it sailed, the Spanish didn't know that they definitely that they were the ones who were targeted. So it's a scheme to conquer the Spanish Americas, launched by uh, Oliver Cromwell, who, as I said, had just become Lord Protector the year before. He had been an important leader who had risen up uh, to prominence over the course of the English Civil Wars because he was a a brilliant military strategist and he eventually became a general. He was not only um, significant in the defeat of Charles I, uh, which brought an end to those civil wars, but also he was sent to invade Ireland uh, and reconquer it for the English, and to invade uh, Scotland and subdue it to English parliamentary authority. So he had had this—he had this military uh, reputation that was quite high, and he was very well regarded as a military figure, and was eventually selected to lead or. <laughs> Well, I won't go into all the details about how he becomes Lord Protector. But he becomes the Lord Protector and he goes to launch this scheme as soon as the Anglo-Dutch War is over. He turns the the military and naval might toward um conquering the Spanish Americas. This had been a plan that a lot of people had talked about in the past. Uh people had thought that the that the Spanish claimed uh far more territory than they could possibly use. And in fact, everywhere that an English colony was planted in the Americas was technically on land that the Spanish said the English had no right to because the English um, being in the Americas violated Spanish control of most of that territory. The only exception to what they claimed as theirs was Uh, Brazil, which the Portuguese held. But other than that, the Spanish say all the Americas, whether or not they actually actively have a colony there, belongs to them, and nobody else is allowed to go there. So the the English had been going there for decades and objected to this very broad set of claims that the Spanish were making, and had been joining with the French and the Dutch in gradually undermining um, Spanish hegemony. They had mostly done it by... Um, going to the edges of Spanish activity, to the less valuable places that the Spanish were most unlikely to run them off of. I mean, they they are um, kicked out of Providence Island uh, in 1641, uh, which was more in the heart of the Caribbean Sea, but otherwise they're on the on the outer edge of the Caribbean or they're way up in North America, places that the Spanish don't value much and don't use. And so there's a kind of an unofficial truce over whether or not the English can even be there. The Spanish say no, but they are not actively wiping out every single colony that gets founded because it's expensive to do that. And as soon as they leave, people come back. So they, they haven't really been able to effectively do that. So for a variety of reasons, the English want to displace the Spanish. They believe the Spanish empire is weak. Um, This is partly the kind of stereotypical language that the English have been indulging in about Spanish decadence, that they are lazy and corrupt. Sometimes they, they struggle with, like, how did they conquer all the Americas and then, you know, but then also have this character that we attribute to them. And Spanish cruelty comes in there as a way to partially explain that disconnect. But they never do totally explain it. They just assume that they are cruel colonizers who are hated by the Native peoples and by the Africans that they have oppressed and that they are not very vigorous or capable of defending what they hold. So they seem... Easy to attack. It's assumed that the quote-unquote subaltern peoples are going to rise up on the side of the English because they're so unhappy to be in Spanish colonies. Um, and also some things that happened in Europe recently where the the Spanish lost Portugal uh, in 1640, the Spanish lost the Netherlands in 1648. Uh, so there's there are indications that the Spanish are um, in decline that are that are not totally based only on this prejudice against them, and for those reasons they seem um, easy target. At the same time, they are considered um, worthy of getting rid of, in partly. Partly because they're Catholic, and therefore uh, the great wealth that they're extracting is supporting the papacy and supporting the Habsburg agenda in Europe, um, and partly because the Spanish are so powerful and have so much influence the world over that you know the other um, governments would like to take them down a bit and. Um, you know, reduce their power and authority. They're extracting great wealth out of mines in what's today Peru and Mexico. And that wealth is, of course, the envy of, of all of Europe. So for lots of different reasons, it seems like a good idea to go after the Spanish. It seems like it'll be easy. It'll be profitable. It'll be something God will smile upon. And so Cromwell, you know, is not alone in feeling these these things. He He is actually... Fairly typical of a wide swath of uh, the population. This is also often discussed as if it's just a "quote unquote" Puritan perspective, but in fact, that's wrong. I mean, Royalists, uh, Church of England people who are completely opposed to the Revolution and who aren't particularly reform-minded in um, in religion are very much participating in this kind of general attitude. So that's the that's the kind of idea behind it is that they can, they can finally accomplish this, uh, this thing that they've been wanting to do for a long time. Cromwell believes, it, as I said, it'll be fairly simple. He sends out a massive fleet and he gives them kind of general instructions that, that suggest that they will basically roll from one colony to another. Uh, you know, that there's lots of discussion of what should be your first target But the assumption is that there's going to be multiple targets quickly, one right after the other, because they're going to fall easily, because a large portion of the population is going to uh, support English rule. And so they don't imagine a long, tenacious effort to conquer just one island, which is what they get themselves into. Mm -hmm. After the fleet spins way too long in Barbados, which is kind of the port of call when you come into the Caribbean, especially into the English Caribbean. But I mean, the sea lanes make it easy to get to Barbados, the winds and the currents. And they they spend too long there waiting for supplies, trying to augment their, their uh, forces, uh, seizing uh, prize ships of those that are trading in violation of the navigation laws. Um, and gathering intelligence, gathering information from people who know what's going on locally. They finally sail without their um, the ships that carry their heavy uh, munitions, without you know all the cannon, et cetera, that had had to turn back because it was too heavy for the ships that they had had assigned to it. And the ships start falling apart and have to you know limp into Irish port, and the whole thing has to be kind of re reconsidered, and so they, they know they don't have like heavy artillery to the extent that they had expected, so that helps them choose a first target, which turns out to be Santa Domingo, which was taken easily uh, on previous occasion uh, by Drake, and therefore they think this is not going to be a, a big stretch for them. So they attack Hispaniola uh, in April and one thing after another goes wrong. And there's a huge amount of blame, you know, laid here, there and everywhere afterward. But what what's pretty clear uh, from the, the, you know, descriptions at the moment is they make a calculated decision not to land the forces at a location that's quite close to the city because the sea is very high and they can't seem to get the boats up to where they want to put people down, which would have made a short march into Santa Domingo. Wanting to retain the element of surprise, maybe, they decide it's better to get people on the island and get them moving than to get into that um, very close location. Although what what they learned subsequently is that if they'd waited a day or two and let the sea go down a bit, it was intermittently possible to land in that preferred location. So they make a tactical error where they land too far away. And then they have a long way to walk. They don't carry water bottles. It's the end of the rainy season. The Spanish, as I said, there there aren't very many Spanish living on Hispaniola either, but they flee ahead of the troops and they befoul the wells. So they're walking... In very hot weather, in European style uniforms with minimal rations, nothing to drink. They start eating citrus fruit, way too much citrus fruit as they walk, probably not entirely ripe. (laughs) And they start getting sick. I mean, they just start getting, you know, intestinal problems, uh, feeling weaker and weaker. They've been on low rations for a while because they had stayed too long in. In Barbados as well. So there's, you know, basically stumbling around on this tropical island in the heat without enough to eat or drink. And they become more and more demoralized and ill. And finally, when they start meeting the Spanish, they are completely incapable of mounting any kind of an effort. So they walk into a number of ambushes. Um, they just make a number of stupid mistakes at one point they are walking up to a fort that they believe to be empty and it starts firing on them and and actually the general and his secretaries are walking at the front with their arms you know with their with you know without their weapons in hand you know and they a couple of secretaries are among the first in that engagement, which would never happen except that they had been so confident that they were, you know, looking at what, you know, looking at a, at a ruin, in fact, uh, that ended up having been manned in the meantime as they stumbled around and that was ready for them as they came along. So they never do make it up to Santa Domingo. And, a lot of them are sick and some of them many of them have already started to die and they finally just decide they have to get off the island. And that's a very difficult decision to make, especially for the people that are on shipboard <laughs> oh. <laughs> wanting to support the the effort uh and feeling very frustrated about the fact that the um you know all this is going on and there's nothing they can really do. Uh to, to stop the the army from its downward spiral.
0: Well, I think can if you're interrupting me you quickly, quickly. Um, I think sometimes people look at the series of events in Hispaniola and, and they see it as just kind of uh, a bumbling effort. And do you see it that way? Um, You know, you kind of mentioned all the ways in which they were maybe not properly prepared for this endeavor, but um, was it partly a kind of, Lack of planning or a lack of knowledge was it a combination of bad luck and yeah. lack of skill? I
1: mean, I think it's some bad luck. I think they are not the new model army. Mm-hmm. You know, they are uh, recruits. Uh, some of them fresh recruits. Some of them taken out of um, out of existing regiments in England, but a lot of them are people that they just picked up in the in the Caribbean, where they haven't drilled. They haven't been in any kinds of engagements. Uh, So they're not hardened troops by any means. I mean, I know we're not supposed to engage in Mm -hmm. counterfactuals, but I've always thought if they had taken the small number of those 7,000 men who were actually experienced soldiers and put them down near the city, it would have been theirs. I mean, Mm -hmm. they, they... a, they take so long about it that the city is being reinforced all through those three weeks. So by the time they're leaving the island, the city has a much higher population of men there to defend it, having come from all the outlying areas. And it makes it a much more difficult Proposition than if you use the element of surprise, if you do like Drake did, and you just land and you're quickly there before they have time to do anything about it. I mean, there weren't even city gates. If they had gotten up to it, they would have been, they would have been overrun. They, they actually fortify Santa Domingo better after the army after the English army leaves than it had been uh, at the time that they arrived. So. My sense is they're inexperienced they're not well trained they're already hungry um, they are ill in many cases, and the fact that they have to make this long overland march is really deadly also, I think it's really important to think about i mean there's lots of there's lots written about this that that makes fun of them for believing that the um Africans would come in on their side. But the fact that they did believe it means they were expecting a very different kind of engagement. They didn't think they were going to be meeting the entire population of this island and fighting them. They thought they were going to have, you know, they were basically going to say, we're here where the English were going to liberate you and all these people would come running and the Spanish would have to just give up. So I think they're kind of not prepared for what they confront in that respect. Um, There's lots of criticism uh, thrown around afterwards, but I think a certain amount of it is, you know, pointing fingers and trying to lay blame that scholars have read far too literally as if it were, you know, an actual description of what was going on and, and the kinds of decisions that were, that were made, um, as opposed to people after the fact trying to, you know, make it look as if they hadn't had anything to do with with what the problems were. So they're also not ready for tropical warfare. I mean, Mm -hmm. Venable says, like, this is not Ireland where you're going to find water. And we didn't know that. (laughs) <laughs> you know? I mean, the last week, the rainy season ends while they're there, and the last week, there are torrential rains, and men who are ill are trying to lay down, in the, and the soil is washing away underneath them. You know, I mean, they're laying on the ground, and, you know, so they're just completely unprepared, and we know what happens to much better prepared and much more knowledgeable European armies that try to land in the Caribbean. Over the next hundred years, I mean, this is—it's not like this is something that's easily done, and they've never tried it before. So, I'm a little more sympathetic to the fact that they—they they do make some mistakes. They—they they have too many men for what they want to accomplish, and those men are not well prepared, and they're—and they're not in good shape by the time they actually come to any kind of uh, um, confrontation with the enemy. So, you know, I can understand it. Happening the way it does in a way that doesn't cause me to simply dismiss them as complete incompetence. You know, I think it's a comp i think it was a combination of things. And I can't believe I know this much about mid-seventeenth-century military history. <laughs> I have to tell you. This was not my area when I got started on this,
0: but well, there's just such great stories that you tell. telling. And in, in particular, I, I just really love the way that you recounted. Sort of the challenges of going through Hispaniola, not only at sea but also on land, and I think you really tell that story quite well. Um, the, the next part then is is once things fail in Hispaniola, uh, the group moves on to Jamaica, and so is this kind of the second place trophy for the English? Well, um, that's how it's. What's treated. the decision for? Yeah, for that's the next how step? it's
1: treated um, in the literature. It's always talked about as a consolation prize. I mean, there is a little something to that, but. I think, okay, they've just been to the Leeward Islands. They didn't even, most of them don't even land. They just look at them and th- and say among themselves and in their letters, these islands are not developed enough for us to show up here and, you know, fall on their resources. There's no way that, you know, the remnant of this troop could go back there. Barbados, they've eaten Barbados out of all its food stores. So, You know, if that was even an easy sailing proposition from where they were, they don't have anywhere local to go, (laughs) basically. They either try to get home in spite of the fact that they're already on short rations, which would not, you know, be feasible, even if it seemed like a good idea to sail back into England and say to Cromwell, oh, well, never mind that didn't really work the way we expected. So I think they're partly worried about what his reaction is going to be, but they also just logistically, they need somewhere to light so that they can sort themselves out. And they know Jamaica has has next to no one on it. <laughs> so they know that it should be very easy. They know that it's been taken by a very small force of English people on an on an earlier occasion in the previous decade by just a a uh, privateer who was sailing around uh, the region in the in the early 1640s, an English privateer, William, Captain William Jackson. So you know, it seems like a logical place to go and regroup. They don't think necessarily that they're done at that moment when they go there, but it, it quickly becomes. Clear when they botch the conquest the immediate conquest of Jamaica, and when they assess how very ill the army is, that rousing themselves to another campaign in the very short term is not going to happen, and that therefore what they need to do is well, what Penn decides is they need to draw down the the navy because they have so many ships that they are endangering England by keeping them there if they're not doing some important work. So he decides they're going to sort through the ships and send some of them home, uh, particularly the ones they figured out are better for use in the Caribbean seas because they sent some ships that are far too large uh, to, to really navigate in that region. And so they sort through what they have and they decide certain ships are going to go home and others are going to stay and that they're going to leave a smaller naval, naval force to support the island and extend the conquest in a more modest way while the army fully conquers Jamaica and regains its health. So the idea that they're done is not really one they've settled on when they, you know, when they take. Some of the ships home, which happens relatively quickly. The controversial decision is Penn goes with them. Mm-hmm. He leaves his vice admiral William Goodson, uh, and and the other two admirals, Penn and Dakin, go home, and that's somewhat controversial that he's basically abandoned his post. But when he gets there, Penn is able to sort of explain all of this in a way that, that, and we don't have that, That was a that was an interview, so we don't have the details of that. But he's able to explain this in a way that makes it sound like it's a logical conclusion to a difficult situation. And he's not in trouble until Venables, Robert Venables, the general, shows up after him, about three weeks after him. And... My sense, they're always depicted in the literature as if they're just, you know, throwing mud at each other. But I actually don't think Penn does that. There's no direct evidence from Penn saying nasty things about Venables. Uh, People under Penn um, are dismissive of the army and of the military effort. But Penn himself, I think plays it in a fairly professional way, or at least we can't know whether or not he did. And uh, it's when Venables gets back and starts trying to, you know, explain how it wasn't his fault because everybody else was doing everything wrong, that the, both the men are thrown in the tower. And uh, Penn gets out really quickly, but Venables refuses to apologize. He basically keeps saying it wasn't his fault. He was set up. This was an impossible situation. The government hadn't supported him. He, he comes very close to saying it was Cromwell's fault, that he wasn't resupplied, you know, that he never got his, his artillery, that he, you know, wasn't provided with the right pilots and guides. And, you know, so he's a, everything that went wrong kind of logistically, he complains about and tries to lay the blame other places. So he spends quite a while in in the tower writing a long memorial about this and trying to, you know, lay the blame elsewhere. Needless to say, he then, I mean, both the men retire from public life. Uh, Penn will come back at the restoration, but not Venable. Um, So he's mostly known after this as the author of a book about fishing. (laughs) <laughs> because when you're tired, you know, become a gentleman, <laughs> you know, living in the rural countryside and enjoying yeah. angler fishing.
0: Yeah, and I'd like to come back toward the end of our conversation about those kind of political implications in England, too, because I think they are quite important. Um, just to kind of carry through with the rest of the story about the conquest of Jamaica, um How much of a contrast is it with with what happened in Hispaniola? Obviously, there are far fewer people. Um, But was it a quick conquest? Um, (laughs) Was there a struggle to make it through the island?
1: Well, when the English come into view, Hispaniola is not able to warn Jamaica what's going on because no one will volunteer to sail over there and try to get around the fleet and tell the Jamaicans. So the Jamaicans are completely surprised and... When they look out and see this, all these ships coming, I mean, they get kind of a momentary warning from a fisherman who makes it back in and tells them. But they think they are confronting raiders who have come to you know slaughter some cattle, take whatever wealth they can get, maybe get some water for their ships, and that they'll be gone again. Um, you know, they think it's another privateering expedition like William Jackson, or, you know, maybe they'll take the main town and they'll hold it for ransom. Um, Notice I didn't use the word pirates. These are all typical actions of European warfare in the Caribbean and in Europe. You don't actually need to be a pirate to do any of those things. And people who only care about military and naval affairs to the extent that they think they're looking at piracy have not really understood the larger landscape. And so they tend to associate all those kind of actions with just, you know, the the people of lore who were uh, the, the famous pirates of mostly a, a somewhat later era. But they run away. The people who live in the town run away. Um, take what valuables they can and get out of town. And that's what, that's what Spanish populations and coastal communities always do when foreign ships show up. So they think they're going to have a parlay about, you know, how much ransom do you need in order to go away and leave us alone. And they're very shocked when the English say, no, no, we're here for good. They don't they don't think that's what they're confronting because it's never happened before. And so basically the population has been allowed to get away. And then the English are kind of on the wrong foot. Like they, they haven't captured anybody. They just you know, force them out of the main town. And there's lots of places to go and hide. The first place you go is you go to your your more rural um, home. A lot of people move in and out from uh, rural holdings into the city, depending on the time of the year. And so people first flee to those and they've got, you know, all the kinds of things they need to make life comfortable or relatively comfortable given the huge numbers they've shown up with. And then they, after they negotiated a treaty and the Spanish population, the, Spa- the Spanish population, by which I mean the population of the island, which is actually a mix of Spanish, African, and Indian, refused to refuse the terms of the treaty. The negotiators who negotiate for them are aghast, but they just refuse to do what they've, what has been agreed for them, which is to present themselves to the to the English army and be transported off the island with very few of their possessions. So they decide that they are going to try to get away on their own or fight. And it turns into uh, basically guerrilla warfare where a few men and some women are in the interior of the island fighting the English, trying to um, you know, capture patrols. Uh, They do relatively few direct military actions. They, you know, go and and attack a a garrison or whatever. Mostly they're waiting to find people who are moving around, you know, in smaller groups. Um, And in the meantime, they're ferrying the old people, many of the women and the children off the island to Cuba. So it's an evacuation that allows them not to be you know, put directly into the English hands and also allows them to choose nearby Cuba, which is not necessarily where they would have been deposited by the English army. In fact, there's talk of the mainland uh, as the place that they would have been dumped if they had agreed to the treaty. So this guerrilla war lasts for five years. Reinforcements are sent on two occasions from other places in the Americas. The, The Spanish government basically informs the local officials, you need to gather men and materials and go and deal with this. They don't send anybody out from uh, Europe. And both times the English are able to turn back these counter-invasions. And as gradually the forces on the island become healthier, or, or lots of them die, but the ones who survive become healthy, they've gotten through the period of disease, and they're actually able to to function as soldiers. They begin to um, patrol around and look for them. And what they find is a independent community of African or mixed race people who have set up a village that's independent of the Spanish and independent of the English and hidden from both in the mountains. And they find this village which has a 200 acre garden and they threaten to burn it down unless the people in the village will help them to find the Spanish. And it's only with the help of this other community that they're able to turn the tide against the Spanish. So it's a great irony in my in my mind that they expect that the Africans will come running to help them. And though the Africans don't, though the Africans turn their backs on them and don't perceive them as really any different, any better, possibly worse, um, it's only when they come to a position of being able to coerce the African population into supporting their military effort, they are able to succeed in um, getting rid of the Spanish and fully, well, I say fully conquering the island, but it's not really fully conquered because there's huge amounts of the of the in- mountainous interior that they don't uh, have any direct control over for a very long time. But at least the conquest, kind of the conquest phase of the island is considered to be over with regard to the Spanish after 1660. So it's fully five years. And they're still dealing with some of these villages, not only the one they found and brought into relationship with England, but also uh, other villages that are living independently in the region. They're not directly fighting against the, the English. They're just trying to live on their own without... Uh, having anything to do with them. And the English want to subdue these independent African villages, but they cannot uh, locate them all. And they will go on to become the the origins of the Maroon community. Yeah, I
0: thought that was a really great explanation of, of some of the origins. I think because so much of the Maroon history is just treated as if they're kind of runaways from the Spanish, and then they just become this independent collective, but you really show that it's much more complicated than that. Yes, um, it is a
1: really complicated story. In fact, I have a piece coming out in, in commonplace where I, just a short piece where I try to extrapolate some from this, this phenomena, which I think, I mean, m- people are mostly interested in the maroons in the 18th century when they're a kind of powerful political force and, you know, very distinctive, well doc, relatively well-documented communities and people Scholars who look back at the 17th just century just sort of say, oh, yeah, they got started after the English invasion without really, you know, looking into it or thinking it matters that the dynamic was slightly different.
0: Well, if we can, I just want to, because the nice thing about the book is that it doesn't just stop with the relative conquests of Jamaica, but also some of the early years, which uh, I think are equally not well known amongst some scholars, at least. Um and so I wonder, maybe I'll ask a couple of questions, but the first one would be, um, what are some of the challenges of, of settlement for the English who are coming over? Um, obviously, anyone that knows anything about the Caribbean knows that it's a not healthy place for people of European and African descent. Um, but what are some of the other things that the early English colonists are facing when they get to Jamaica?
1: Well, yeah, the health the health issue is huge, of course, Um partly because they arrive in such bad shape and also because it's just such a, you know, it's a disease environment that they're not accustomed to. Um, The interesting thing for me, and I think, you know, people I've talked to who know about these, you know, issues of disease find this also to be interesting. Even people that come from Barbados or from the Leeward Islands die in droves in Jamaica So, it's not as if they think the Caribbean exposure will make them healthier, you know, make populations healthier, but it doesn't work out very well that way. They have a lot of trouble with that. They also, you know, need to figure out how they're going to make the island into an English colony. And that's not something the English government has ever done before, much less a navy and an army. So, (laughs) there's a very You know, there's a very strange sort of transition that's not really planned, uh, except on the fly. Initially, they're so hungry uh, that they decide they will just start. First, they harvest what's growing already, what the Spanish had had abandoned. And, And they often dig up things and eat it before it's ripe and there's spanish observers kind of watching as they do this and writing about it um which may be because they're starving and maybe because they don't know they don't know how to hunt the cattle they actually have to bring people into the island who know how you deal with semi-feral cattle and how you hunt them uh they do a lot of stumbling around in the woods trying to shoot these beasts and wounding them or shooting each other or you know and so the, the cattle are actually sort of running away from them and then dying of these wounds. And so now they're starting to find these animal carcasses that they can't eat. And that, so it's sort of a disaster. And they, they really diminish the population of livestock that's on the island in the first years. They finally bring in uh, hunters that have experience on other islands and have them teach some of the soldiers. And then they begin to have regulated hunting parties that are out collecting meat and hides. The previous uh, work on the island had mostly focused on the hides, which was the tradable item. But they're actually now preparing the meat as well and using it as rations. And so sometimes you'll see naval ships are told to stop in at set places on the north side of the island to meet up with these hunting parties who will supply them. they also, you know, have to figure out how are we going to organize agriculture here? They have an army, basically, and they're trying to attract settlers, but everybody's hearing what a disaster it is, that it's not fully conquered, that people are starving, that everybody's sick. So it's really hard to get colonists to come from anywhere else to Jamaica in any kind of numbers in the first years. So they decide that they're going to have the regiments plant for their rations.
0: So instead of having
1: the state provide rations, although the state is continuing to send out with the various ships food, it's never adequate, you know, and enough never comes. So they um, start having the regiments plant as part of their regimental duties, and that is gradually transformed into this weird system where it almost seems like the officers are going to become the landowners and the soldiers, the common soldiers, are going to become the laborers. And you can imagine how popular that is. So that becomes a huge point of controversy. And it's decided that to motivate the men to plant, they will all get a small piece of land. I wasn't able to document fully that that was always done, but I could find groups of common soldiers who were given big allotments together, like 20 men, 200 acres or something like that, or find men who just got small acreage. I even found some records in the deeds that said, you know, as part of their allotment from their military service, this is their land. So it's clear that it was done, how comprehensively it was done. It certainly wouldn't make anybody a large holder. Only the officers get really large holdings, and they become the core of the uh, initial planter class on the island. Uh, When the island eventually shifts over to civil as opposed to military organization, they're the first people who sit in the assembly and on the council. Uh, are the officers who mostly the officers who are large landowners? So they're making this strange transform, you know, transition from being an army to being a, a settler society. But the the fascinating thing about it is all these military men are stuck on the island. They're prohibited by policy from leaving. So if they don't die and they don't manage to sneak off which a few of them do um although ships captains are are um in a lot of trouble if they if they do that and get caught um then they just become the the settlers on jamaica and remember these are people that didn't even know where they were going when they left um england so it's quite it's quite astounding that these end up being the, the first people. They do try to attract settlers. They do get a few. They bring they bring a, quite a large number, 1,600 in from Nevis. Most of them die. Uh, they get some from uh, the Summers Island, from Bermuda. They are, there are high hopes for New England, but people there mostly decide not to come once they hear about what's going on there. Um, and there's a general sense in the Americas that England should be sending people from England. <laughs> but there's a general sense in England among the authorities that the islands should provide or the other, the other colonies should provide the population. So it's, it's a mix, but I, I would say probably more of the, f- the first population comes from other, other locations in the Americas. Comes from England. There are some English investors. The Earl of Carlisle gets a huge plot of land, but he doesn't, of course, go. He uh, he goes later, very briefly as governor. But but at first, he just sends servants and employees who are going to supposedly run his his land for him. They're also trying to figure out agriculture, which is you know a whole other whole other piece of it what
0: to plan. Well and you brought up this up earlier, but I think it's uh, I think it's important and kind of maybe ties in with this that uh, you're you're sort of hesitant to talk about the, the issue of piracy because you don't really see it being um, either as extensive as many scholars have said or um, what's actually going on, you I think take issue with it being considered piracy. And so I wonder if you could say a little bit about that in terms of these very early years after the English come into Jamaica, the degree to which piracy is something that's foundational or central to the government or the economy of Jamaica and what you might see instead. Well, it's not
1: (laughs) (laughs) period (laughs) full stop. Um, you have the Navy there, um, in, you know, quite serious numbers into the early 1660s. And then you you almost always have a naval ship. I mean, there's one or two times where for a, for months there's no naval ship on the station because ships fall apart in the Caribbean Sea and have to be sent home and new ships have to come out. Um, or they run out of rations at a time when it's not turtling season and the commander can't send them to the Caymans to, you know, restock their ships. Uh, but the Navy's always there and the actions that are being done are generally under the authority of the Navy. So many of the, of the activities that, you know, older books would, of pirates about pirates would list would be a couple naval ships and a couple private ships going off to do something not only with authority from in the sense of like letters of mark, but with detailed instructions from the commander in chief on Jamaica. This is as far from piracy and as close to early modern warfare as possible to get. I mean, this is how early modern wars are fought. So, part of the way this is turned into a kind of free for all in the in the scholarship is by denying that there is a war. Treated like the English invade Jamaica in 1655, and then any hostilities that happen after that. Are not part of of that initial conquest, but in fact the war goes on until in in the Caribbean until 1670, until the Treaty of Madrid, until the word of that treaty comes and is disseminated and brings a stop to uh, the warfare that's been going on in the island. It ebbs and flows. There are people who write letters who say we've really got to stop attacking the Spanish because it's you know having this negative consequence in various ways especially i would like to get started trading with them and as long as we're at war we're not going to be able to do that but warfare is endemic and is part of the policy of various island governors the first royal governor to uh, to be sent out as opposed to the one who's the commander in chief who becomes a temporary governor under Charles II until the first one dispatched from England can arrive. He comes with a naval, with a couple of naval ships, but he also comes with his own privateering vessel in order to prosecute the war against the Spanish. So it's it's uh, very much policy on the part of the English government. Which does send mixed signals, but which usually comes back around to the idea that they need to defend this island and they need to stop the Spanish attempts to re invade, you know, to retake it, and that they need to um, keep up the pressure on the Spanish because they're in treaty negotiations trying to get them to agree that the English can have Jamaica and can have the other islands and the other colonies that they have. And so you, you can read the, the treaty negotiators in Spain writing and saying, it's good if we keep attacking them in the Caribbean, because this helps to make the point that they need to settle. We need to confront the current situation and they need to settle our, our arrangements uh, in a way that's going to stop these hostilities from happening. So there are private men of war. Um by the mid-1660s who are active in the region. They're using Tortuga and Jamaica uh, as ports of call, but they are, by and large, doing so with the support of the English government there and often under instructions from them. Now, few people basically violate the terms. Uh, Doily does actually send... uh, one group of men back to England to be tried as pirates and it's because they go out with his orders and they ignore them and and they go too far with one particular ship and so he takes basically privateers who he has deputized and then wants them punished because they ignore the terms of their contract with him but in general it's a war. Um, fought the way early modern wars are, with a combination of naval ships and private ships and with local authorities managing it. Part of the problem is the disconnect between what they think is going on in England and what people in Jamaica think is going on. So there's a certain amount of um, Mm cross-purposes that you can see in the correspondence back and forth. Uh, And as soon as the people in Jamaica hear, you know, oh, the Spanish have now decided they're going to invade, you know, they're going to invade us again. They are, you know, they ramp up the rhetoric and issue more uh, orders for defending the island. And, you know, they make a strong case that that's what they're supposed to do in their position. So the idea that we want to read it, all this piracy, it seems to me is it arises from the fact that we assume that this is an American phenomenon that we're looking at, and it's really a European or a global phenomenon, the way Europeans fight wars during this period.
0: Yeah, and if maybe this be a good chance to kind of wrap up our discussion. Uh, I wanted to maybe return or at least get to the, one of the big ideas that you have in the book and it relates to the issue of war, and that is that you really see the conquest of Jamaica and the Western design generally as being kind of a sea change in the English empire. And so I wonder if you could just say a little bit more about why you think this is so central to the way the British empire uh, is eventually kind of transformed.
1: Well, it is the first time that the British directly take a colony from another European power. Um, Always before, as I'm sure you know, know, and lots of people who study early American history now, Uh, the central authorities allowed colonization. They facilitated it. They gave uh, charters and proprietary patents, but they didn't do the work. They didn't organize the forces. They didn't manage the entire process. They farmed it out to use an early modern (laughs) uh, way of thinking about it. So up until that time, the authorities in England, whether they had been monarchs or, um, or the people who were running england during the revolution had been willing to allow private citizens to do these things with their permission with their guidance but they hadn't actually done it themselves so that's a huge change and that's one reason why they're then confronted with well how do we get from an army and a navy to a settler colony like these are you know it's a transition they have to make in some other places like virginia because they think they're just going to set up a garrison at first but but it is a, an important transition that they have to figure out. Um, so that's important. It's a much more activist state. Uh, the fact that they're doing it then puts enormous uh, pressure on English resources. Uh, they don't have the bureaucracy. They don't have the... They're just beginning to have colonial committees that'll look at... Um, you know, correspondence and keep organized with uh, what letters are coming in and what requests are being made and how are these going to be filled. So they don't, they're not really set up at this moment to do what they're doing, but they learn. They learn through Jamaica what they need. And I just had a, a related article published in uh, the Journal of British Studies that gets more into the kind of bureaucratic side of this. Um So it's important for that reason. It also totally changes the dynamic in the Caribbean because the English are now in the middle of the Caribbean and they're putting all this pressure on Spain and attacking Spain, uh, various Spanish holdings, interrupting shipping. They prevent the play fleet from sailing one year. And that means that the Spanish have to really confront the fact that they cannot just keep saying that all the Americas are theirs and that no one else has permission to there. And so they accede to the English presence in the treaty in 1670. And that means the English can have the colonies that they have. And that completely changes the dynamic. I also think it's important that the French kind of follow the English into the middle of the Caribbean, and that all of the wars after this then begin to have a a multinational, for lack of a better word, dynamic in which it's the French and the Dutch and the English fighting each other, as opposed to all these other little states kind of piling on the more powerful Spanish, which is what they'd been doing for the previous hundred years. So it makes a huge difference in that region and in the kind of creation of the apparatus of empire and of a different thinking of how the state is going to interact with the wider world.
0: Great. And again, I think you detail it really expertly. And it's um, it's it's nice to get to know all the details of, I think, a period of time, which I thought I knew something about, but I really learned quite a bit in going through this book. Um, Thank you. Just uh, Thank you. So you mentioned you have uh, sort of this article about the moons coming out. Is there anything else that you're working on right now that you're... Well, you know, I sort kind of bounce between the
1: empire and religion. So I'm also working right now on a little piece on Quakers and... Uh, thinking again about some of the issues that were related to the Protestant uh, empire book that I did before. So I'm writing some papers along those lines and thinking about what do I want to do next. So I haven't really settled on a big project next, but I I, I seem to have swung back at least temporarily from my, my Empire the empire end of my <laughs> spectrum of interest to the religion end, so...
0: Hold you back in. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, again, uh, thank you so much for for talking about the book. Again, the book is uh, The English Conquest of Jamaica Oliver Cromwell's Bid for Empire. Uh, Carla Passana, thanks again for joining me.
1: Oh, well, thank you for having me. It's been great.